Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Historian Peter Burke once said that if each successive generation reinterprets the norms only slightly in the process of receiving and transmitting them, appreciable social changes will take place over the long term. Other authors have likened this gradual change to the slight adjustment of tracking radar on an airplane. Just a degree or two of change can have a tremendous impact on the final destination. This adage can work to our advantage just as effectively as it's worked to our disadvantage. As Newtonian law demonstrates, to every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Knowledge is power if we act upon it, and recognition of our propensity for influence is a starting point for us all, both as individuals and as a culture. I was recently having an online conversation with someone who was convinced that the entire world would soon be wiped out from COVID. How did she develop such a hysterical, hyper-emotional focus? Easy. Mass media. Let's break down some stats. On an average year in America, 655,000 people die from heart disease, which continues to reign as the leading killer of most Americans. Heart disease, commonly attributed to arthrosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries, is what's known as a, quote, preventable disease caused by diet, smoking, obesity, or lack of exercise. Preventable just means we can prevent it if we want to. The heart disease death rate, 655,000 deaths per year, absolutely dwarfs the COVID death rate of 255,000 deaths per year, though every death is tragic, of course. And that data is demonstrated on the CDC chart called the U.S. COVID cases by state. That gives the latest cases as of the day, as of right now. If you factor in an average U.S. death rate projection of 21,000 lives for the remainder of the year, dividing that out by 12, annual U.S. COVID deaths would be projected at about 276,000, which is, again, still considerably lower than the top two killers, heart disease, which was, again, 655,000 deaths per year, and cancer, which was 600,000 deaths per year, 599, which, according to the American Cancer Society, same concept here, Cancer is largely a lifestyle-based disease attributed to much of the same causations as arthrosclerosis. Now, I've said this before, stats have to be analyzed in context, not in a vacuum. Think about it this way. In 2018, accidents claimed 167,000 American lives. So, U.S. COVID death rates are falling somewhere between the death rates of accidents and cancer, and about half the death rates of heart disease in the United States. And yet, Listen, we haven't closed down the highways or boarded up fast food restaurants across the nation to minimize deaths, nor is there a public mandate to change one's eating or exercise habits despite the fact that there are more deaths due to cancer and heart disease than COVID. So though COVID's death rate is much lower than the top two killers, this is posted on CDC's death and mortality chart at cdc.gov, COVID remains the focal point of media attention. Nobody's saying sickness isn't real, but given the stats, It's clear that this particular sickness is being hyperinflated by the media in order to play into a larger agenda. Media-induced hysteria stems from the power we give to our personal and collective influencers. Whose voices are we allowing through the gate into the habitat of our hearts? Jesus said in John 10.10 that the sheep will know his voice. 
And he said that this thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy while he comes to give life and life more abundantly. It's vital that we are intentional about the voices we allow into our hearts and into our homes. From the trends of personal violence, such as cutting and drug abuse, which ranked on the CDC, by the way, suicide and self-injurious behavior, 50,000 deaths a year, pretty, pretty sobering, to issues of mass violence and homicide rates. Is the spiral moving closer or further from socio-emotional healing? Are we happy with the fruit of the fractured lives and fluid relationships exemplified in these current lifestyles? Is this the world we want to pass on to our children? Many people would agree that America is headed not only for financial ruin, if we don't turn the ship around, but for moral bankruptcy as well. The good news is that the possibility for personal and social transformation rests within each person, no matter the age. In our previous episode, we highlighted some of the incredible challenges facing the public school system in the United States. The government has continued to throw money at the problem the same way we threw money at developing countries in the 1980s. We didn't teach skills. We simply alleviated our own guilt by assuring ourselves that, quote, we gave at the office. You've read the stories of piles and piles of clothing in dumps in Africa where we've sent them things they couldn't use in those in those eras of the 80s. However, winds of change are blowing. There was an article posted in the National Education Association magazine that highlighted a trend for a handful of schools in Oklahoma, Boston, Chicago. Intersection of church and state, the article was called, How Public Schools Are Welcoming Religious Help and Why There Hasn't Been a Lawsuit. In this article, the president says that the president of OEA says that the church and family can be a natural place for people to find help. In Oklahoma, that means church members volunteer to help with reading, writing, math, and art after school. And these responses have been phenomenal as individual lives have been impacted and students are turning from purposeless to purposeful as a result of this unlikely merger. Kudos to both organizations for displaying the courage to change. And you know, we've talked about that before that throughout the history of the United States, the number one institution that has come to the rescue of all humanity has been the church. And yet again, we see it constantly dissected from the public education system. After a recent concept I gave on um, this topic, a couple rushed up to me excitedly and they said it was a man, a woman, an eight-year-old son, and they had just spent two weeks without television. The reason for their fast was simple. They wanted to know how much of a role TV was playing in their lives and how much of their time was being invested into it. At the end of the two-week period, the parents decided that the child would be begging for the reinstatement of an electronic entertainment. But instead, the son begged his parents to go another two weeks. He was having the time of his life interacting with his actual human parents, being listened to instead of suffering those "Uh uh-huh responses uttered by a TV adult or child engrossed in a show. He was playing games. He was being creative. For this child, pulling the plug on television meant an opportunity to grow closer to his family. Without the din and minutia and the constant whine of commercialism, the most important matters came into clear view. What a beautiful picture was etched in my mind from that conversation. What would our own collective worlds look like if they were people-centric instead of media-centric? What if we knew more about our neighbor's struggle or triumph than we knew about the latest celebrity lip enhancement? These are important questions because in reality, television causes us to be caught up in a world that isn't reality. It causes us to watch life as observers, spectators, instead of engaging in life as adventurers, explorers. 
This type of real-life living has begun springing up in grassroots movements across the United States. In addition to corporate change, many individuals have shared with us their own stories of triumph and emergence from the cocoon of media centrality. One girl, Jamie, wrote to us that she had recently made some changes in her viewing habits. Quote, I've stopped watching online investigation shows and have seen a huge difference in my life, she said, adding that she realized she was watching lifestyles that contradicted her faith. As Jamie put it, quote, It's not just about turning the TV off as much as it is turning your spiritual discernment on. We shouldn't let the world rate our shows and movies for us. The world should be our rating. The word should be our rating scale. We shouldn't watch sin as entertainment. Great word. Another person, Carrie, told us that she and her husband decided to give up screen time for 40 days. They felt like their constant exposure to all these media outlets was keeping them from connecting with the real world. Quote, it was not only stifling our creativity and relationships, she said, it was also numbing us to being present with one another, our community, most importantly, God. The first week, she said, they were at a total loss, having no idea what to do with their time. We didn't know how to unwind or relax, she said. Our thumbs ached to surf the internet and check email. It felt compulsive. But slowly, she said, slowly we emerged from our fog and began to reconnect with life. Another respondent, Carrie, said that she and her husband began to talk more, to cook together, to have friends over for games, to connect on a whole new level when they cut back media. We remembered that we were not only husband and wife, but also best friends, she said. Neither one of us realized how much we'd been checking out emotionally and spiritually. We also didn't realize how we'd been missing out on the real pleasures of life, she said. We'd been too busy filling up on the constant media inundation to be present in our own lives, she said, adding that the experience without media has helped them both create balance. Now we have made a point to unplug with great intention at least once a week. We need the drastic withdrawal in the beginning. That was the only way to kick the addiction. A girl named Rachel told us that she and her husband decided to give up television five years ago. They said they'd only planned to disconnect for a year or so, but once they saw the change in their lives, they decided to keep it off. We'll most likely never go back, she told me. You see, once you break away from it, you're shocked by how many things have changed when you end up seeing it again. We become sensitive to what we see. We're not locked into a schedule, so we never feel like we're missing something, she said. I believe mainstream media has a purpose and it's hugely powerful. Unfortunately, though, she said, the media is so perverted that you have to wade through so much to find what is truly good, she added. The main benefit for our family has been the fact that we are at ease and full of peace in our home. Another respondent told me that while he believed there was considerable merit to a media fast, he wanted to maintain a mindset of being media savvy. How do we manage our intake? How we manage our intake of information is important, he explained. Many leaders have taught their followers to reject, but not to discern, he added. Making space for stillness is wonderfully healthy. It helps provide a broader vantage point, but the challenge simply isn't leave the grid, simply to leave the grid, but rather not to get tangled up in it. That is a great word for being in the world and not of it. Now let's get back to some testimonies of people who've broken free of the stronghold of media socialization. Why is that important? Well, the Bible tells us that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Let's hear some more testimonies. Rich told us that he grew up surrounded by media. Quote, I grew up having every gaming system there was, remembering my love for playing Atari, Nintendo 64, PlayStation, he said, and movie upon movies growing up was what fascinated me. He said his own dad had a blockbuster in the bedroom that he loved to look at and often pick the movie of the night. His happiness, he said, was found in those things and the community that it brought with it, whether friends sitting on the couch or family, quote, bonding, but not really, as we'll talk about later. Then five years ago, he took on a media fest that gave him a new perspective in life. 
The fact shifted my life in significant ways, he said, defrosting his heart and changing his focus. When he was able to overcome that powerful draw to the numbing venues of media upon his heart, he said his passion for life went to a whole other level. His relationships became more focused, more intentional, which surprised him at first. The normal functions of life continued, but they didn't stay, quote, normal long wherever he went, he said, adding that priorities in life changed dramatically since that moment. He said, quote, if we believe that our heart is what, we will, what will matter in the end, that we must do all we can not only to protect it, but to keep it alive. Another respondent, Christina, told us that she and a friend had decided to take a break from music for 40 days. We realized, she said, that nearly every minute of our life was tuned into some sort of music. The alarm clock in the morning was set to music. We had music as we prepared for work. We listened to it on the way to work, while at work, during the return trip, once home and cooking dinner. Yes, we listened to it again, and then we fell asleep listening to it. In the absence of music, she had to learn to find new ways to, quote, fill the silence and express herself creatively and spiritually. Another respondent told us that he stopped watching TV over three years ago, with the exception of things like presidential debates. He said, I now have a more positive frame of mind. I attribute this to the fact that I'm not inundated with the negative stories on the news, and I no longer get mentally or emotionally involved in TV dramas. I didn't realize, he said, until I stopped watching TV, how irritated or excited some shows made me. He said, remember we talked about this, the, that vicarious emotion that comes from the unearned high. Remember those studies a while back with... Um, Washington Post author. I stopped watching TV, he said. My mental and emotional energy is now directed toward more constructive endeavors. And the time freed up by not watching TV, he said, allowed him to spend more time with friends and family doing other things that he found enjoyable and fulfilling. A responder named Steve told us that he and his wife had decided six years back to cancel their TV service. It was a sacrifice for me at the time, he said, as that meant giving up sports as well. But now, he says, we have a TV, but we control what goes on on the TV. He said he's seen a difference in their children. They could care less about TV. They, they use their imagination. They're caring, compassionate compared to their peers. They haven't been desensitized to things like mindless killing. They don't know how to curse or use foul language. Steve said that his family now spends more time talking and engaging in activities the family finds meaningful. I don't know what we what we would even fit, how we would even fit TV into our lives, he said, because it would mean sacrificing the things that we've gained. To those who argue that mainstream media is the only way to stay in touch with current events, he added, don't believe everything the liberal media throws your way. That is hashtag truth right there. Think for yourself. He challenged others to, quote, step away from the propaganda machine for 30 days and see how ridiculous things sound from your friends who are quoting the mainstream media. That's some good advice right there. Another respondent, Jennifer, 18 years old, told us that when she was a young girl, media took a central role in her life. When I was in elementary school, she said, that's when girls like Britney Spears were on the scene. Sometimes I would come home crying because I wanted to be just like the other girls. I would look at them in magazines at 10 years old and see all the women they called beautiful. I began to realize that I would never measure up to these girls. This sent her into a downward spiral, she said, as she made one desperate attempt after another to fit into what the media was telling her at a very impressionable age was the norm. When I was 13, she said, because I wanted to be like these girls, most days I wouldn't eat all day. I just wanted to be skinny. I started to dye my hair and wear tons of makeup. All through high school, I was like that, looking to magazines and movies for a false definition of beauty. But Jennifer said that one day she realized that she didn't have any true friends. And as she began to think about this, she suddenly realized that her insecurities were actually driving other people away. She said, quote, I realized that it was because I was not respecting my own beauty. I finally decided to stop reading magazines and watching TV and decided to find out what God said about me. She said, I found that I was fearfully and wonderfully 
perfectly made, a daughter of the king. This realization of worth, of personal value, and inimitable beauty gave her a sense of freedom she had never experienced before. Now, she said, I no longer read magazines because the image of beauty to them is a woman who's airbrushed. Pretend, she said, a woman who doesn't respect herself, a woman who commits herself to tons of broken relationships. Like the stories of Jennifer and Rich and Steve and Rachel and Carrie, there are many more stories to tell, stories of refocusing priorities, of establishing relationships, of connecting once again to life, real life. During an economic shakedown, we have the opportunity to refocus our priorities. Uh, An economic shakedown can symbolize death in many ways because sometimes it means the loss of something familiar, something comfortable. If we put our hope in the almighty dollar or Bitcoin, we're likely to be gravely disappointed. If we put our hope in a false image of attainable beauty, unattainable beauty will be profoundly insecure. But if we hope in things that matter, then our hope cannot be shaken despite a tumultuous economy, despite the shifting ground beneath our feet. This point is illustrated beautifully in Shakespeare's sonnet 29. He said, When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet in these thoughts, Myself, almost despising, happily, I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth rings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Boy, gratitude is a great reminder to help us break free of that spirit of entitlement. Where our treasure is, our heart follows. It's our cultural tendency in a capitalistic society to wrap our hearts around money or fame or beauty or other markers of physical or material wealth. This, of course, is one of the reasons we've been shaken as a culture by news of economic downturns and turmoil. We have had this emotional stock invested in material goods, so we have a great deal to lose. Where our treasure is, there our minds and our hearts and hopes and dreams will be also The hummingbird hovering at the bird feeder on my porch is not troubled by an economic downturn. Our puppy is no more troubled than the hummingbird. Our children, too, are shielded from the emotionalism of that downturn because they don't belong, as my son once put it, to, quote, the adult world of worry. They belong in the here and now, and the most important thing to them is they're loved, supported, encouraged. As adults, it's time for us, too, to refocus our priorities, to become media literate, to assess the damage and emerge unfettered from the cocoon of media socialization. This requires a paradigmatic shift, a new framework of thinking. Consider for a moment how the paradigm you once embraced that you now know to be inaccurate and how inaccurate that inaccurate paradigm can be so dramatically impacting to your existing view of reality. Maybe it was the discovery that Santa was really dad, spoiler alert, or maybe it was something more compelling. I remember attending a function once where someone had been seriously disfigured in an accident, injured to such a degree that the top half of his face was literally missing. I knew I would be meeting him in person at the event, and I wanted to show respect and warmth and humanity to him. But try as I might, when I shook his hand, I could not force myself to look him in the face. I greeted him warmly, but my face would simply not obey my commands for eye contact. I went home absolutely drenched in guilt, feeling terrible for how I must have made him feel because I couldn't look at him. After two days of wallowing in the guilt of this experience, I suddenly had a realization that shattered my paradigm. 
The man was blinded by the accident. He couldn't see me looking at the floor. He only knew that my warm handshake and my words of commendation were a blessing. The tremendous burden of guilt was a product of my faulty paradigm. If you've ever been trapped in a paradigm, emerged from it, and looked back in retrospect, you too have probably experienced a sense of amazement that you could have ever been so misled, so deceived by something that was ultimately not even real, like the episode last week when we talked about the emperor's new clothes. It seems that many of us live our lives like this, caught up in a world that is more of an illusion than a representation of reality. There are imaginary pressures and imaginary milestones to reach and imaginary deadlines and imaginary people to impress when we meet them. It's a world of illusion and and delusion. And with so much of that devastation behind us, it may be difficult to look out through the rubble and scan the ground for a ray of hope. But as the modern poet Adam Zagajowski reminds us in his poem, Praise the Mutilated World, there is a gentle light that strays, even vanishes, but in the end, that light returns. At times, we have to push aside the decayed leaves that have formed a veil over truth for so long. Just as King Josiah's servants dug through the rubble of that temple to find the forgotten book of the law that had altered the course of history. The hope of a next generation is housed within that individual in transition. And as we'll see in our next few episodes, we are fully equipped to usher in a powerful movement of both personal and corporate transformation. It's time for us to rejoin the communicative dialogue that's been lacking since the 1970s values clarification tornado swept through our education and familial systems. If we desire social transformation, if we are eager to be proactive and not simply critical, then we must begin with our first line of defense, self If we see that moderate to excessive screen time is decreasing our intellectual ability and our interpersonal skills, if we see that it increases our propensity for violence and laziness and materialism and selfishness and idolatry, why would we not then modify our lifestyles to facilitate personal transformation? These are important questions because in reality, television catches us up in a world that isn't reality. It's entertainment-driven modality teaches us to watch life as observers, as spectators, instead of engaging as life in as adventurers and explorers. Whether we've been lulled into a narcotic stupor or incited to rampant materialism, the ultimate detriment is the same. Massive media consumption has impaired our ability to think correctly. We have named the enemy and now it's time to fight. As Peter Burke said, we've got to reinterpret those generational norms more directly. As some of our respondents encouraged, we have to begin to contemplate both the quality and quantity of our media diet. We have to ask ourselves some pointed questions. What's the purpose of consuming and being consumed by seven or eight hours of media a day? What's the purpose of amusing ourselves to death? Like our food intake, a media diet should be managed through portion control and nutrient density. Too much dangerous nonsense will skew the behavioral scale. Media use needs to be tempered, purposeful, and literate in nature. Because what we meditate on, we believe. And what we believe, we become. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at DrLisaDunn or via email to contact at DrLisaDunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Nunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.